podcast, the One Action Hub podcast. Hello and welcome to the One Ocean Hub podcast, Reignited. My name is Milica Prokic and I'm an environmental historian working on knowledge exchange at the One Ocean Hub over at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. In our pilot episode, the One Ocean Hub researchers, Bo Larry Nosho and David Wilson, were talking with Nikiru Scotcher about the links between customary law, human rights and the ocean. And today it is my great pleasure to have Dr. Kirsty McQuaid and Dr. Mitchell Lennon, and we will talk about yet another set of interrelationships of the ocean and humankind, namely the ocean climate nexus and human rights, which is a topic of the new special issue of the International Journal of Marine and Coastal Law, entitled Ocean-Based Climate Action and Human Rights. And it is edited by Mitchell and One Ocean Hub director, Elisa Morgera, and it is authored by Kirsty and Mitchell, among other scholars across disciplines. Kirsty McQuaid is a postdoctoral research fellow with the University of Plymouth in the Marine Conservation Research Group. Uh, she's working on deep sea ecosystems and the deep sea, dear listeners, is any part of ocean deeper than 200 meters. It is 97% of the volume of the ocean. It is home to a vast array of life of undersea mountains and canyons full of these beautiful, weird, outerworldly looking creatures and pivotal for human and planetary survival. As part of the One Ocean Hub, Kirsty is leading the establishment of the African network of deep water researchers to develop capacity for deep sea research in Africa. And then we have Mitchell Lennon, who's lecturer at the University of Aberdeen, who explores the intersections of international law of the sea, climate, biodiversity, human rights, and trade law. Mitchell has contributed to several consultancies for the United Nations Environment Programme, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the Secretariat for the Convention on Biological Diversity, national governments, and non-governmental organizations. Mitchell's expertise in law is also underpinned by education in marine and freshwater biology. Welcome to the podcast, Kirsty and Mitchell. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Thanks so much for having us. What is the ocean climate nexus? Um, what is it exactly? And uh, yeah, how do you explain it to a layperson? Yeah, so I want to say up front that I'm not a climate scientist, <laughs> but I do have some understanding um, of how the ocean and the climate interact. Um, and so the ocean climate nexus refers to these this very inextricable links between the ocean and the variability of our climate. Um, and so it's related to two key factors, which is heat um, and the transport of heat and carbon. Um, so the ocean absorbs huge amounts of heat and carbon from the atmosphere, um, which we know a lot is produced through human activities. Um, and this can be through physical mechanisms like this heat transfer from the atmosphere into the ocean or absorption of carbon from the atmosphere into the ocean, but also through biological factors, which would be, for example, if you have plankton, which are like small um, living in the surface waters, um, and when they sink from the surface waters to the seafloor, they're transporting carbon that is captured within the plankton from, you know, the surface waters to great depths. Um, and so, in essence, this ocean, the ocean and the climate are very tightly connected, um, and it's this ocean climate nexus. Um, and it's really of great importance when we start talking about global climate change, um, and how this might be mitigated. 
and what the role of the ocean is in regulating our climate and what its role is in mitigating climate change. Okay. Thank you, Kirsty. This is a brilliant segue into my next question. And my next question is to Mitchell. Um, and it is, um, when you say that there is an urgent need to advance international legal research on ocean climate nexus um, in the context or sort of building on what Kirsty just said, mm. uh, what do you mean by that? Okay, uh, so we've known about climate change impacts on the oceans at, at the very least since the 1990s, okay, um, at least at an inter international level. Um, and that's because of the first ever report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, okay, so the IPCC. Um, and as successive reports have come out, each of them has had a section on the impacts of climate change on the ocean. And then we end up with this special report on uh, on, on oceans and climate change in, in 2019, um, so we're we're very aware now of how the ocean contributes to climate regulation, as Kirsty's already said, especially through deep, deep sea ecosystems. Um, although we're still kind of uncovering their full extent and so on, but you know, at the same time, we're also recognizing that climate change affects individuals, um, it affects communities, um, and 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 these negative effects can be viewed as human rights violations as well. Um, and indeed, certain responses to climate change, um, you know, can threaten the conservation of biodiversity, including marine life, and, and also threaten human rights, uh, whether that's uh, ways of life or, or access to access to the ocean and, and so on. So uh, so with that, I guess that kind of background, I guess that, you know, the international community has kind of largely overlooked the potential of the ocean to do this, the potential of the ocean to contribute to achieving climate goals and uh, and in international climate negotiations and stuff, the ocean has generally just been left out. And I think it's fascinating because we'll go back to this report in 1990. That spurred the negotiation of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That was the report that made governments say, right, hold on, we need to get together and do something about this. And so the ocean is there in text and print in black and white. But And it was included a little bit in the text as an example of, of a carbon sink. But after that... Focus has been on other things. Focus has been on mitigation. Um, and the ocean's effectively kind of been left out, despite it's it's there, it's recognised legally as part of the climate system. It's recognised as a carbon sink. Um, and states are under an obligation to protect, preserve, and enhance that. And yet, no one mentioned the ocean until much, much later. So anyway, kind of moving on, you know, kind of to, to closer times, on, we've got this, we've got two sides of a, of a coin. We've got, on the one side of the coin, the international community has officially recognized now the importance of the ocean in addressing climate change. Uh, and they did that in Glasgow, which is where I'm from in 2001 um, at the UNFCCC COP. Um, however, we're not really sure, as things have been going since then, we're not really sure whether any commitments or or, or, or any of this recognition will actually lead to action. Um, and indeed, any action at all, let alone ambitious and, and kind of precautionary action, which is what we need. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, we have the courts, okay? Um, there's this huge wave of national climate change litigation. Most of that's human rights-based, and rightly so, um, particularly from a national perspective. But we've also got now international courts and tribunals, like the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, um, the International Court of Justice, uh, and also the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. So all three of these, we've got this sort of triple threat of advisory opinions now coming. So, so all three of these courts or tribunals have been kind of called upon to clarify um, international legal obligations of states in protecting the 
uh, protecting the environment from climate change more broadly. Um, however, the loss has been asked specifically, um, you know, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea has been asked specifically to to kind of uh, rule on what states' obligations are to to protect and preserve the marine environment. However, with the International Court of Justice and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, this is the environment. Since we know that the ocean is integral to uh, climate regulation and uh, and the protection and preservation of several human rights and upholding those, then uh, we know the ocean will come into play. Um, and these three, uh, and these three kind of uh, advisory opinions that will that will come out in due course. Why do we need? Um three tribunals to to rule on, on stuff uh, when we have things like Paris agreements or the Treaty of High Seas, uh, otherwise known as the VBNJ agreement, um, and also about the interconnection between human rights and protection of marine biodiversity and ecosystems, uh, and sort of how, the, how do human rights uh, uh, feed and how do they speak to all of this? So these three courts have, and tribunals have there's various different aspects that they've been asked to rule on. So some of them are to do with protecting and preserving the marine environment from climate change and preventing marine pollution. So that would be the, the tribunal for the law of the sea. Um, and then we have addressing kind of obligations to uh, related to climate change. So what states need to do, and that's at the International Court of Justice, um, also with the frame of, of human rights as well. And then, of course, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is a big human rights focus, obviously, as in the title of the court. Um, and how the how what what states need to do to kind of safeguard human rights from from climate change impacts and uh, including on individuals just now and also on future generations also. Um, so okay, so 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 that's again more background. But you know, while all of this kind of scientific and, and legal activity has been going on, there's really this urgent need for us to uh, ensure that like international research on international legal research on the ocean climate nexus isn't siloed okay isn't restrictive um it doesn't focus on one area of law or the other okay so i'm for a long time i was a law of the sea person but you would need to understand that climate change law plays a part here uh international biodiversity law plays a part here and indeed human rights law plays a part here and bringing people together um and trying to wear all those hats at the same time can be very very difficult um before you even bring in science for example um so it is. It can be a challenge, but we need to, we need to do it. We need to we need to step up to that challenge because um, only one legal discipline uh, it doesn't doesn't have the answer. Um, I think that's obvious um, to a global problem. So, you now, one of the issues that we've we've, we've seen and, and and what spurred us on to do the special issue was that you know international legal scholarship to date has focused on you know the fact that the ocean provides us with food and and water supply, kind of renewable energy, the benefits for health and well-being, you know, cultural values, tourism, trades, transport, you know, all of these sort of things. And, and you know, and, and all of these have various effects on human well-being and that sort of thing. And so so this human rights component is really intricately linked. Um, but many of these actions will be implemented through either law of the sea, biodiversity law or climate change law. OK, Um so yeah, so so and we know that marine ecosystems aren't fully understood. Um, so there's all this kind of uncertainty with like pelagic um ecosystems, deep sea ecosystems. Um, so there is this urgent need for international legal scholarship to kind of come together, both marine science and human rights and all these other areas of law that I've been talking about to show them that actually this is an integral part of law of the sea. You've just mentioned the equitable uh, access to the sea um, and to the deep sea research. Um, I would like to know if you could tell us 
Um, and if you could tell me, like I'm five, year, five years old, because I'm a complete layperson when it comes to this, um, how can equitable access to deep sea research inform decision making uh, and how it can make it more sustainable or more inclusive? And furthermore, um, what is the equitable access? Would uh, it be fair to say that equitable in this context means equal and fair? Mm, thank you. So this is a, a really big issue, which is becoming um, was being brought more and more to the forefront. So deep sea research is much more expensive and much more difficult to undertake than coastal research. And that's because you require really big vessels, you require really specialized equipment, which has to be able to withstand huge pressures um, when you go deep in the ocean. Um, and you can sometimes have to travel like days to reach your sampling sites. So it, it's a lot more, um, let me say like resource heavy, maybe um, research than coastal research. And so for that reason, um, it's undertaken far more by wealthier nations um, than by, let's say, developing nations. Um, and so for that reason, nations in the global north are far more advanced in terms of the, re the deep sea research that they can undertake. They have much greater access to the resources that are required. They have greater human capacity and skills to undertake research um, than the global south. And this can result in um, knowledge gaps. So we know a lot more about deeper waters in the global north compared to the global south. Um, and then this goes on to impact like the ability, your decision-making ability and your ability, um, your the support that there is for environmental management. Um, and so that's within the context of nations with own EEZs and their ability to manage their resources within their EEZs. But it also extends to kind of global fora where you have much lower representation of global South scientists and hence their concerns um, and their priorities in global fora, um, decision-making fora, than you do scientists from the global North um, and, and participating in those negotiations, let me say. Um, and so I think in terms of what that can bring, I mean, th there are a number of ways that you can um, or actions that you could take to improve things. Um, and certainly partnerships um, and collaborations are really important. But when we look at this, we have to be really careful to that these partnerships are fair and that they're meaningful. Um, and so we avoid sort of historical parachute science practices where there's very low participation by local scientists um, or potentially, I guess, token participation. Um, and so were you to have uh, more equitable access to deep sea research, greater participation, I mean, to put it very simply, I guess, if you have greater representation by more diverse um, diverse researchers or scientists or diplomats or whoever it might be um, within decision-making fora, um, you are including you know, their concerns and their priorities, and you can better understand the nuances of what is important in different areas of the world. Um, and so in that sense, you would have um, more inclusive and fairer decision-making. 
I guess that uh, lawyers and lawyers of the sea or experts of the law of the sea are your targeted audience with this special issue. Um, but I also hope certainly mm. that uh, other people, not just uh, other scholars, um, we see that it's a multidisciplinary issue to begin with. Kirsty yes. is one of the scientists who, who mm -hmm. have uh, authored uh, papers there. But also, I do hope that although it's, as you said, a very, very complex matter, I would definitely hope that uh, uh, people who, even beyond scholarship, would be interested in this. Yes. Because indeed, uh, the BBNJ is the commons, right? They they should uh, belong to not just all of the humanity, but the entire planet. Uh, and uh, it's in that uh, vein incredibly important and crucial. Um, so yeah, thank you for this comprehensive answer. Uh, and I think that there's a lot to unpack, but I think we sort of started to do so. Um, and yeah, I would like to thank you both very, very much. Um, for all of these answers and for joining us today. Uh, and I hope there's a lot of food for thought um, uh, in this episode. For me, as I said, as a layperson uh, in this uh, these disciplines, it certainly has given me a lot. Um, so thank you both very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us.